0: All right, welcome to uh, Legal Tech Week for August Fourteenth, twenty twenty, in which uh, our panel of uh, legal tech journalists get together, and uh, some of us drink and some of us don't. And generally, we try and round up, <laughs> round up the week's news, and uh, so I am Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites. I'm a tech columnist for Above the Law, and I do the uh, podcast Law Next. Um, And let's all uh, go around and introduce ourselves. Molly, you want to go first?
1: Sure. Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist and communications consultant based in the Chicago area.
0: And Victoria?
2: Hi, my name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter with Legal Tech News, which is a property, a publication owned by ALM. You'll sometimes see my byline on Law.com, American Lawyer, and a few other ALM publications. And I write mostly about the intersection of law and technology and I'm based in Philadelphia.
0: But of course, you're mostly known for being on Legal Tech Week every Friday. That's my, yes,
2: awesome. AKA, I'm also a panelist
0: on this. Uh, Uh, Zach, how about you?
3: Hey there, everybody. Um, I'm Zach Warren. I work with Victoria, uh, Editor-in-Chief at Legal Tech News. Um, Also find me at all those other various 30,000 ALM brands. And I represent the Midwest here, based out of Minnesota. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And Joe Patrice.
4: Hey, everybody. Joe Patrice above the law. Um, you know, I don't really have much else to say above the law. I guess I also host Thinking Like a Lawyer uh, as a podcast. I'm on this show, as you might have guessed since you're watching me. Those sorts of things. Uh, having fun watching the bar exam uh, mostly this week. So,
0: Yeah. Fun. Yeah, fun.
4: Right? It's never going to end.
0: One person's, <laughs> one person's pain is another person's fun, I guess. Yeah. Um, And Victor Lee. Hi,
5: everybody. I'm Victor Lee. I'm the assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal. I um, manage the business of law section, which uh, covers business of law and technology. Uh, And my usual disclaimer is I do not speak for the ABA or the ABA Journal. And if you're interested in other organizations I do not speak for, there's a list on my website.
0: So I can't ask you. Last night, my wife asked me the question of why isn't the ABA solving the access to justice problem? You can't answer that, I guess, right? Why does uh, it have to be Utah? Well, well, no, That's it's, the it's, question. Why Utah? It's a
5: complicated I mean, it's a complicated <laughs> issue and it's there's a no, lot of know. different moving parts, a lot of different um a lot of you know, I mean the ABA is not a monolithic organization. There's a lot of different um, types of lawyers, a lot of different types of people in it. And it's not, you know, what 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 some people I mean what, you know, some people might think is a way to solve it might not be how other people solve it and like any bureaucracy there's always a process that, that that has that we have to go through and we have to we have to respect and you know it's not something that we can just be like okay you know go do it yeah yeah no
1: so i have yeah. thoughts <laughs> uh. i know i'm sure you do <laughs> Um, I won't get into too many of them, but as I, uh, my most recent gig with the ABA was uh, as editor and publisher, and I was there for a very long time. And, and like Victor said, that it's a complicated issue. Um, it's also uh, a complicated topic, and I think the ABA has been very good at uh, working on uh, one aspect, which is pro bono and volunteerism and really working that into model rules and part of the ethics and and responsibility of lawyers and have that be part of the culture of lawyering. Uh, but, you know, it what Bob wrote about this week um, we can't volunteer our way out of the access to justice gap. Was one of the one of the comments, and and that's and it's going to take a, a much broader um, solution um, from all across uh, from the courts, the uh, public policy, uh, and and the bar working in concert or in or separately on different parts of it to really improve the, the, the issue the problem.
0: Yeah, and I didn't mean to pick on the ABA, really, although I've been I've been critical of the ABA at times as well. But, you know, the ABA is a monolithic organization. There's a lot going on within the ABA to push this issue forward. Uh, I was probably last sort of more most overtly critical back when they came out with their report on the future of the legal profession or whatever it was a couple of years ago, where they, they the report was full of these amazing findings about the need for alternative forms of delivering legal services, the need for redefining, you know, the alternative pra uh, um, uh, what what constitutes the practice of law you know just all this great stuff and and then when it came down to actually making recommendations I did feel like they kind of wimped out on that uh, and they could have done so much more so but uh I mean speaking of that i will I'll, I'll uh, exercise a moderator prerogative and go go with uh, the story I wrote about this week because I really do think this is i I think this is just huge uh, and, and that's the story of the fact that the uh, the Utah Supreme Court this week uh, approved what it had proposed a few months ago, which is, um, you know, it's not an understatement to say it's a sweeping set of, of regulatory changes um, in that state, uh, beginning with the creation of this so-called regulatory sandbox, which will go for at least two years now. They, they set it up for two years um, I was on a panel just this morning with Justice Dina Simonis from Utah, and he said "Good could, could be longer than two years. Maybe two years isn't long enough to really test this out, uh, but but we'll start there. Uh, where, where essentially they will be setting up this uh, sort of mirror regulatory body, not the normal lawyer regulatory body, but a body to uh, regulate and approve alternative legal service providers. And they don't have to be lawyers. They could be uh, you know, they could be social workers. They could be social workers and lawyers teaming together. They could be tech companies. They could be tech products. The possibilities are really endless uh, and they're going to really focus uh, on, uh, you know, uh, collecting metrics, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work uh, and uh, seeing if it has an impact on access to justice in the state. Uh, You know, they also at the same time approved a number of changes to the rules of professional conduct, uh, that are corollary to that <clears throat> corollary to that, like, you know, basically, uh, you know, getting rid of some of the rules of, uh, requiring, uh, uh prohibiting non-lawyer ownership, uh, uh, or investment in law practices, uh, and, uh, basically getting rid of any kind of advertising rules whatsoever. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, this is this is huge. I think um, Arizona is probably not too far behind on doing something very similar, and of course, other states have been talking about this. Um, but I think you know this happening now, combined with I think some of the changes that we've seen from that we're seeing because of uh, COVID-19 and, and and the pandemic and all of that. You know, I, I think we are really at a major inflection point in in law, not just in legal technology, but in in the overall way that legal services are delivered in this country.
4: Yeah, I, I you know, mean, more oh, than, yeah. go ahead. No, no, you, you, you beat me. <laughs> oh, I mean, I didn't have
3: too much to add other than just, it seems like forever ago that we were talking about this as the big story of 2020 and then COVID happened and then right. everything happened, but the fact that this is gaining traction, yeah, I think it's huge. Um, There are so many different aspects to pick out of what you're just talking about there, Bob, but I think the parallel body is going to be one of the most interesting ones for me. What exactly that consists of, how innovative and really pushing the envelope they want to be, who it consists of, Um, that you might have more information than I do, especially if you just talk to Um, Monus today but just seeing practically these details play out uh, it's it'd be a lot of speculation for me right now but i'm just very interested to see how it would happen
0: yeah we didn't get any more details today really i he didn't say anything today much that you wouldn't have already heard
4: it's just interesting to me that uh, you know going back to past episodes of this show, it's not long ago that we were talking about states pulling back from these sorts of innovative, different uh, approaches, uh, like Washington getting rid of that LLLT program. And just the idea that there isn't a trend right now, that different states are just going different directions and Utah is going a more positive one, uh, which actually tracks, for those who aren't observers of it, it tracks Utah's reputation. I, I feel like every time I hear about something kind of Forward-looking as far as evolving law in these sorts of areas, it's always Utah. Uh, so they deserve some credit for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, if, you, if Utah were a publicly traded company, I'd buy stock in it right now.
1: Yeah.
5: <laughs> well, I think the interesting thing about, I mean, because yeah, like, uh, yeah, like um, you know, Joe mentioned the Triple LT program in, in Washington, and you know, um, you know, um, um, my reporter covering this, Lyle, has been very good about keeping up on this kind of stuff. You know. The devil's kind of in the devil's kind of in the details with these kind of things, but also it'll see like you know where we are now might not be where we are in two, three, four years because with the triple LT program, what what he found was that as judges started leaving the Washington Supreme Court, like ones that were supportive of the program, new judges came on that were more suspicious of the program, or they or didn't see the point of it, or they were more protectionist. So will that happen in Utah? I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it will, maybe it won't, maybe it won't matter. But I do think it's interesting that you know, with the ethic, will, the ethics will change. Is like with the, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, like the, like, like the, like the lifting the ban on fee shifting and whatnot, not fee sharing fee sharing. Um, that's going to stay, you know, that's going to be part of the code even after the two-year uh, regulatory sandbox is up. So, you know, they're going to have that regulation in, in uh, on the books at least, at least until you know they decide that they want to get rid of it and change it again. So that's a big thing. I mean, because that was one of the, that was one of the third rails. Uh, um, for, for the longest time, So, oh, if we share fees, you know, uh, with with non-lawyers, and that's the end of the profession because these people are going to come in with their unscrupulous ways and blah 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 blah.
4: Right. I,
1: you know, a couple of points there from from Joe and and Victor. Um, I, one with Joe that and the earlier comment about the ABA. Um, the ABA sets model rules. It doesn't mean the states can't lead, um, and And that's often what happens with model rules too. Is a state kind of demonstrates or a jurisdiction demonstrates that something can be done or needs to be addressed or an issue and then a model rule is developed. So I, I've been frustrated not seeing the state step up and do some of this experimentation and testing. Um, I, so I'm very excited about Utah. I've seen some of the hedging uh, because of Washington, um, on, especially on Twitter, some discussions, but this, the Utah approach is, is much more sweeping. And much more open. Um, there, the Washington um, Traveler T program was so narrow in focus and so limited, um, and there was no effort really to. Exp- well, the the time that once folks started to recommend expanding it that's when they just shut it down instead. So instead of improving it and it and um, morphing it into something that works they just they just shut it down. Um, So I'm hope I'm more hopeful with this approach this kind of more open concept this more transparent approach from Utah that we'll see innovation and development that can be um, replicated elsewhere. I think a
0: part of what burdened the uh, triple LT program in in Washington was that they tried to uh, uh, harness it with the same, same sort of complex regulatory structure that exists for the legal profession onto the triple LTs. And that was really a way to appease lawyer opposition to the program. I mean, that's really the only reason they did. I mean, obviously you have to have consumer protections built in, but the interesting thing about the two entity structure in Utah is you can have a, an entirely different kind of a regulatory body with different goals and, and different aims. Uh, there was a, a woman on our panel today that I was, this was an association of professional responsibilities lawyer panel I was on from from the UK, you know, who was talking about the fact that you really just need to, you really just for some of these things, you just really need to completely deregulate or completely think differently about what regulation means uh, for them if, if they're going to work. And I think uh, that's something that, lawyers in the United States are having a a lot of trouble letting go of or, or uh, getting their arms around.
5: Also, I think the triple OT program got hamstrung in the sense that like, you know, anytime you start up a new program with all that training and all that, all those regulations, it's going to cost money and it might not, you, you might not see a return on it until, you know, you know, for, for several years, but then, you know, it's a convenient excuse for people when they say, Oh, well this program costs so much money and we're not seeing any return on it. So therefore we have to get rid of it. It's like, well, but you know, you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to be running in the red probably for the first few years, but it, it, that becomes like a way, you know, like a way to kind of, you know, press the off switch if you need it.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I forget whether I mentioned this, but for any of you who uh, are in the audience who are new to watching this, we welcome you to uh, engage with us in the chat, throw us any questions you have. uh, And uh, we're happy to, happy to take them on as we talk about these things. Did we lose Victoria? or? I, uh, Victoria, your picture. Oh, went I'm away. here. I don't know if, I
2: just. Okay. Oh, I'm here. There you are. I just had to respond to something very quick, but That's I okay. am here. <laughs> yeah.
4: Uh
0: Yeah. Um, so. Uh, what, let's, what, what should we talk about next? I mean, Zach, there was a kind of a big, you know, sort of industry acquisition news this week. You yeah, know.
3: sure. Um, there were a few M&A deals this week that I thought were interesting. Um, Thomson Reuters buying case lines is one. Um, that, that's more UK centric. Uh, and Caroline's not here this week. So I'll pass on that one for now um there is nk and zebra works which i thought was interesting as a merger but the one that was really sticking out to me was reveal and nexlp um reveal is an e-discovery company an e-discovery company especially when i talked with them that has big big plans um and i think the ceo wendell Gisa would kind of admit that himself um part of those big plans this week was bringing on nexlp um NextLP is an artificial intelligence company. They partner with pretty much most other e-discovery companies to license out their software at this point. But now they're coming in as a reveal shop. Um, The goal, at least both sides told me, is to kind of further integrate the products. And now that they're working for a common goal, be able to pretty much have AI all parts of the process and try and integrate it, not have it as a separate one-off. Um, so I know reveal is hoping that this really kind of propels them to the next level as one of the top players in eDiscovery. and people basically, he said, if you give us a try, um, we think we have something to prove here. Um, it'll bear itself out. We'll see if that happens, but I found the shoot for the moon. Very interesting.
0: Yeah. That was interesting. Do you think the, uh, the, uh, the scorecard, I guess, uh, is is changing a little bit in terms of the lineup of who are the top players right now. I mean, we're we're about uh, when's when's we're coming up soon on Relativity Fest. I think uh, Relativity probably continues to be the 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 big Kahuna in in this space. But uh, are you know are the are the prominent players changing?
3: Um, at least the sense I get, I mean, just looking at funding figures, if nothing yeah. else. So many of these companies, including Reveal, have gotten at least eight figures. Sometimes coming up, I think Extero got more than nine figures in funding. And just that alone means your capabilities, not only for R&D, but for M&A, just skyrocket. So while I think Relativity still has the most usage, uh, there's definitely some firepower behind everybody else, where I, I think they at least have the sight of like to get to that level. Um, it's in their crosshairs, I should say.
0: Yeah. Anybody have thoughts on that or comments on that? We've been talking about e-discovery for, for so long. And it's, uh, it's <laughs> still, I mean, it's still, it's still an interesting, it's still such an interesting industry and it's a part yeah. of the industry and it, there's still so much going on, uh, but it, is that, uh, some is that, can it's- Zach, have
5: you, have you noticed any, I mean, like any like companies, I mean, you know, you, you talked about how, um, you know, it seems like you know, these guys want to shoot for the moon. Have you noticed any other companies like kind of taking that attitude as well? Um, you know, besides these guys?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, about a week or two ago, Haystack ID was another one that had some M and a, um, at disco has been well documented just with all of their funding and advertising everywhere and trying to pick up corporate clients in particular. Um, it, I mean, that's where I think a lot of this is moving, honestly, is a lot of e-discovery starting to be in-sourced and staying within corporate legal departments, and a lot of e-discovery companies saying, hey, this is an emerging market that is kind of up for grabs. We want to be the one dominating there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, whether that continues, we'll see, but I find it interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, what else we got? Um Victoria distributed firms are having their moment. You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. And I think it definitely, um, with Utah's big decision that they announced, um, earlier today, kind of because with 2020 being a year of a lip of change, especially in an industry that isn't really known for adopting change or embracing change. But, um, my colleague at the American lawyer, he wrote about some AM law 100, uh, partners leaving their firms for some virtual law firms or decentralized work um, law firms, as some people may like to call them. And he said one of the reasons is is mainly because of the pay. And he mentioned one of the uh, virtual law firms, Fisher Broils um he reported that the firm's trend um the partners are able to retain 80 percent of the fees from work they originate and handle themselves um and the law firm said that they're able to do that because they have um a smaller overhead compared to traditional law firms so it'll kind of be interesting if you start seeing more of these um high-level junior associates or senior associates and partners leaving big law and going to these virtual law firms. And if that'll maybe at any point influence law firms and saying like, hey, maybe we need to change up what we're doing, especially with COVID-19. Some people just don't want to go back into the office. You know, like, how will they kind of make sure that, oh, we're staying competitive and we could maybe even lower our own overhead by maybe not having so much office space. Um, it'll be interesting to see, like, how that plays out. And if um, some big law uh, attorneys continue, like, their exodus out of the traditional law firm or those virtual decentralized law firms.
4: Yeah, that's so I actually have mentioned this. Uh, I've mentioned this on this show a while ago. I think actually, uh, it's just like a random yeah, side. We <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't think you were. Um, I'm kidding. But the um, but so, in addition to working at Above the Law, I do some consulting work on the side with a legal recruiting company. And this is this is absolutely a trend that is happening. Uh, we've been. In the, putting on that hat, we've been placing tons of partners from large, big law firms in these sorts of virtual firms. And a lot of the trend is that people have worked from home now and realize wait a minute, I don't actually need to go into an office to do my real estate practice, for instance. Uh, all I do is talk on the phone. I can do it from home. I'm efficient at doing it home. And I could be getting upwards of 80, more likely 70 or whatever percent of my billable, of my returns, I can keep myself if I'm just willing to do it myself uh, from home. And that's been a real boon. And the firms are taking advantage of it and people are listening, Uh, getting interview. uh, I'm on the list as I'm a consultant, but I see like all the activity and there are people from all the firms that you would um, consider the top elite places are all looking into this.
2: Yeah, and kind of like we always talk about, like, lawyers have to become more efficient because of their clients, and now law firms have another motive, like, they're losing, they may lose t- talent when they're saying, like, hey, like, I understand I can't keep all my billable, or the percentage of all the work that I'm making, and it's just kind of like, hey, do I, do you guys need to still have that Midtown Manhattan, whatever, I guess that's a very expensive, part of New York City office doesn't need to be that large. If I like working from home and my clients are okay with me working from home because we're not seeing each other in person, but I'm still getting worked done for them, so
1: victoria i 'm curious if you think so I you know we, we we've seen this boutique startup and you know thinking that was going to be a big disruption with uh, huge you know practices moving um, out striking out on their own, and you know were they going to be competing with big law and we really didn't see that we said maybe a little business shift but not not enough to disrupt big law uh, and i but i'm curious if because I'm still skeptical that that would happen, I I do think this strengthens that mid mid level virtual firm and uh, for at least some sophisticated um, um, big company work. Bet the bet the company work. Maybe um, I still think they'd go to a big brand name law firm, but I do wonder if it will lead some of these firms to develop the model a model similar to Hush Blackwell, where they have that virtual. What are they calling it? The link. Um, practice group that works remotely to give that option to partners so they don't lose talent.
2: Yeah. I think the hybrid kind of makes sense because they don't have to necessarily pay for all that real estate. Now, if they can say they give that option, you still have to, um, Uh, Have your billables and meet your billable um, goals and everything like that. But I can have, um, I can bring in the talent who likes that hybrid of having the flexibility of coming to the office or working remotely or just working 100% remotely. And I still get that talent and, and those billables. So I can see more law firms embracing like at least a hybrid. I don't see necessarily like the AM Law top 10 or whatever just going fully. Virtual, of course, but I do think it kind of makes sense from a financial standpoint if you just say like, hey, if, if we get a survey, if people say they're comfortable with working remotely at least half of the time or a hybrid, then maybe we can downside a, a little bit of our overhead by not having so much office space because people don't want to be in office. So I think you may start seeing a shift in that. And I know some of my colleagues they've reported about law firms negotiating about their their real estate uh space and kind of like maybe downsizing a little bit on that. So I think it's something that we will kind of see um and then I'll continue after 2020 is over.
5: And also, I mean, I think I think it also depends on 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 what the clients want, because they're all they're ultimately the ones that'll be calling the shots and kind of you know pushing law firms, even ones that may not be willing to adopt this kind of model if enough of them are demanding it from their outside counsel. Counsel, then they'll have to do. They'll have to accommodate them. Because one thing that kind of struck me with that piece was that you know uh, when you have a virt- when you have a virtual model, you can put. You don't have to put associates on, on 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 these projects. You can just put partners, and the partners can charge less because you know they don't have to kick up money to the to the, uh, to upstairs or anything like that. And you know, I mean, most ultimately, most clients what they want is they want predictability and they want, you know, the best lawyers to be handling their stuff. And if they can do it for, if they can get it for a bargain price, much less than what they were being charged beforehand, then, you know, I don't, I don't see why a client wouldn't want that. I mean, that's, that's that, that that's the, that, that's the dream for them. But I, I, one thing I thought was interesting about this piece as well was that uh, when I was at ALM, we, 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 we tracked the partnership, the partner um, uh, movement all the time. And during the great recession, we found that a lot of the, um, you know, partners at like the big, you know, the big top firms, like you know your Skadden's, your DLA Pipers, and your whatnot. Like in certain in certain practice areas, like employment and you know some other ones, if 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 they were under a lot of pressure to like lower their fees, but they couldn't do it under their structure at the firm, they they would leave and go to either smaller firms or boutiques. So now, if you if you have, if you have a virtual model, then that sets up an interesting an interesting kind of alternative for them that they don't have to stay in that traditional kind of mold of either going to like a second hundred firm or regional powerhouse or, uh, or, or, or starting their own, sh- their, their own boutique or whatnot, they can, they can go to like a, go like a, you know, like a, a big virtual firm and, and they can still kind of have, have the, have the, have the structure that they're, that, they're, that they're used to while still being able to kind of set their fees and do what they want to do.
4: It well, feels well. like, Oh, sorry. Oh. I, yeah, I, I was just going to say that the, um, to one well, thing that Molly said about the, um, about the boutiques and whether or not they were going to disrupt things, it strikes me that there are two vectors, uh, two axes of disruption. And I think the boutiques did disrupt, but not big law. It disrupted the regional powerhouse mid-sized firm. As, as GCs started going, I can't not give this job to Scadden because I want to protect my my. My, in myself if it goes wrong, but then uh, all the other work, they're like, why would I give this to Amlaw 170 when I can give this to a boutique? Uh, and then this idea, I think, is an axis of practice area. Uh, you're probably not going to a virtual firm for bet the, comp- bet the company litigation, but discrete real estate deals, uh, like all these practice areas that can be more discreet are more likely to do well in a virtual format where a, a associate workload is not as big a deal uh, where it is a one and done sort of a thing like so it 's going to disrupt along that vector, bringing up the question maybe a a law firm that has an imprint that is virtual is a way of holding on to that because otherwise certain whole practice areas could move and be. Outside the big firm umbrella, I think of T and E is the biggest one. Like a lot of big law firms don't understand why they still have T and E practices. If that becomes a a new offshoot into this virtual world, that would make some sense.
0: Yeah, I, I, and one thing I'm struggling with around all this is is whether why why the the traditional firms would ever go back to the office. I, I mean, are. I think it seems that all firms are going to be struggling with, you know, being virtual to some degree or another going forward. I don't think, you know, we're ever going to go back to the norm. Um, And it certainly, you know, we keep saying, oh, well, you know, people are saying, well, by the fall, people will be going back to their office. And now fall is coming soon. And people are saying, well, by January, they'll probably be going back to the office. I don't know. It, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen. And it seems that if instead of people, you know, losing people to these virtual firms, the more established firms need to be reconfiguring their models to a virtual world. And, and that may stem this, this very tide that we're talking about right now, or this flow that we're talking about right now. I think I it depends on how question. much lawyers.
4: Oh yeah.
1: Uh, well, well, my practical question is I keep thinking about what it's like to be a real estate um, um per, uh, lawyer or um agent right now
4: yeah. <laughs> for
1: commercial real estate right. what most of these uh, deals for these larger spaces are years in advance so right. it, what you you have this space, you've got you've got to use it or right. what? you're not It's like re- the one argument reinvest. to go back to the
0: office exactly. is we got this space. you might as well use it.
1: <laughs> well, right well, so then what do you what do you do? I mean, you can renegotiate. I, I mean, I agree with you on a certain level, although I keep hearing that firms are going back full steam as usual, a business as usual, and I'm kind of stunned to hear it.
4: I think it depends on how much lawyers like the people that they live with. Um, I think that plays a bigger role in this than any of you are giving credit for.
3: No, I I think it's interesting, though. I feel like at some point you're going to have some pushback from the traditional firms. Um, My colleagues over at Legal Week in the UK reported Freshfields this week. They're moving into a new London office and they put out this policy that said, hey, you can work virtually. That's fine. But if you do, you're not going to have an office to go back to. We're downsizing. We need to use all of our space. And uh, my colleague over in the UK quoted some people saying, oh, hold up now. That's not exactly what we wanted. We like our physical space. We want the option. So it may be that in the future, they adopt that sort of model, but lawyers can't necessarily have their cake and eat it too. They might have to pick one or the other.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Courtney Schropman points out that in South Carolina, they never closed, uh, which I'm a little surprised at. But I mean, you know, the firm's never closed here. They never stopped practicing, but nobody's going into an office in Massachusetts. I, I, I don't know too many places where they're going into offices.
1: That was my the question lawyers, for Courtney. Yeah. What, what did, just because they didn't close and um, legal services was considered essential services, which it was in a lot of states, um, did they actually go? They didn't hear, even though legal is an essential service.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see what else do we have here. Joe, do you want to? Did you want to talk about uh, your take on the Wall Street Journal's take on lawyer bots? So
4: the so the Wall Street Journal irritates me as a general <laughs> matter, but in this case, in this case, the Wall Street Journal irritated me. They put out an article this week about. Um, do you trust robot lawyers and i i think a lot of us uh this is a niche enough pub, uh broadcast that everybody here has heard the robot lawyer scare stuff and isn't very uh frightened by it but what bothers me about it is this is the mainstream media and they're talking to the mainstream audience about how oh would you trust a robot lawyer to do whatever and my issue is it depends, um, which is the classic lawyer answer, right? Uh, that's what we all are told is the answer to every question. It depends. But I think that, that really doesn't come through in this article. And that's what really bothered me about it, which is, no, I, I wouldn't necessarily trust robots to do the bet, back to the example of the bet the company antitrust litigation. Uh, but that's not what I'm asking a robot to do. I'm asking robots to do different stuff that I would absolutely trust them to do. Um, whether it's something like Do Not Pay where the robot is actually replacing your, uh, your traffic court lawyer, basically, or a lot of the other examples that exist. That's the really sad thing is I actually thought it was a really good piece as far as laying out the groundwork of what's out there. Uh, but its headline and angle were much more scary. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of places where artificial intelligence not as magic beans, but as just a tool, has a huge uh, value to the profession. And so long, scaring people about it and treating it as though it can do these things that it can't, like replace lawyers, uh, it hinders the adoption of the technology for tasks that it can do.
0: Yeah, it was a little bit of an alarmist. Uh, The the writing, the uh, more than a headline. The piece was the way it was written, even was a little alarmist. Uh, uh, You know, the uh, do not pay is not is not doing bet the company litigation. That's for sure.
2: It still surprises me, and I've been covering legal tech for. Uh, I haven't been covering legal tech for over two years, but it still surprises me when I hear legal professionals are scared about legal tech and taking their jobs. And I, um, listened to a University of Pennsylvania Law School webinar they had earlier this week. And they had a judge, a state judge from Michigan. And she said her colleagues, her fellow um, judges in Michigan, they were a little bit um, worried about implementing some type of legal tech because they they thought that may take away from their job or take away from their caseload. And it's just like, wow, there really is fear. And I've heard that before, even in the UK, some of the, I guess, like solo practitioners over there, they're a little bit worried about some um, legal tech software being implemented over there because they think that can take away from their work and it just it does kind of go feed into that but I do think there is like a genuine fear at least from legal professionals and lawyers that sometimes legal tech can maybe overstep and take away from their work and perhaps replace them and it's still surprising for me to hear that from legal professionals. Yeah.
0: I mean, it came up today and this, this, again, this panel that I was talking about earlier today, but this is this, the this group of professional responsibility lawyers. And it, it came up in the discussion around what's going on in Utah with lawyers saying, look, this, this, these kinds of changes in regulatory, uh, in, in legal regulation are going to wipe out solo and small firm lawyers because uh, Amazon and Walmart are going to be doing all the, all the legal work. Uh, and and there won't be any more small lawyers, small firm lawyers. Um, you know, which is, again, just a, a complete misunderstanding of both of, of the nature of the uh, access to justice gap in, in this country and, and of the nature of the solutions that can be developed under a program like this.
1: I think Joe's piece points out really nicely, pulls out that piece um, and points out nicely that, you know, there's a difference. In having a, a, a bot do lawyering, and a bot and an algorithm help screen and direct people at, to the right place that's the most useful for them. And there's, that's, there's incredible value in that. And partly because, well, mainly from my perspective, because none of that is happening now. And so much of the public is missing out on proper access to the judiciary and the, and the justice system. And there's no reason that the courts at a basic level or libraries or anywhere that has a public um, portal uh, Um, access to a portal shouldn't be able to give this access to people, to have these abilities to screen, to find the right documents, to know, to get tutorials on how to file, you know, at least some of this transactional work at a minimum, let alone um, law firms and others using this as a way to triage or um, route cases to the right lawyers, to the right team, um, and, and get, you know, get better solutions for their clients and also
5: i mean i think i think robots are you know they're scary like they're you know i mean i i didn't read the whole editorial but i saw the illustration of like you know the robot sitting on the uh, on the on the witness stand with the with with a suit and tie and like you know he didn't look as menacing as they as, as they could have made him or, or it, i don't even i don't even know what his gender um they could you know but because uh, um i you know, to kind of bring to kind of to kind of illustrate this point a little bit i remember one time i think I think I was at a, I was at a lecture at, at a tech show and Ed Walters was taking all the all the journalists to task for making robots so scary because they always draw like you know these Terminators or like these you know cyborgs with like you know the exposed exoskeletons and whatnot Absolutely. practicing law and it scares people and and I think he, he and I think the article he was pointing I was actually one of mine at the time and I'm like hey I didn't draw I can't I can't draw I can't, you know I can't draw anything but but um but but they're a convenient target and 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 there's something that you know people don't fully understand people, you know, get, you know, like either because they watch too many movies or they watch too, you know too much TV or whatnot, you know, the idea of like a robot handling this stuff can be scary for people. But I think, I think one thing that people don't really get about the law is that a lot of it is templated. A lot of it is predictable. A lot of it is just wrote paperwork and memorization and all this stuff. And that can easily be done by, 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 by a machine. I mean, it can be done much better, much, much more efficiently and much quicker. And, you, know, you, don't, you don't end up getting charged like, for, for, for a whole hour when a machine can do it in like, you know, a few minutes or seconds. So, you know, I mean, as far as that goes, like, like what Joe was saying, yeah, of course you want, you want, you want AI to, to take care of it, you want a ro- robot to take care of it. But you're not gonna be hiring a robot to like, come up with the next Twinkie defense for you if you're on trial for your life. You know, you're not gonna do yeah. that.
4: Yeah, to Molly's point about, um, about access to justice, now I will uh, jump from that to Victor's point about like, uh, you wouldn't pay the full hour. People don't talk about how these robots might increase the amount of work that happens in that I think there are a lot of people with legal needs who say, I can't afford a lawyer. And maybe it's because they don't have a case or maybe they do. But if they can go somewhere for relatively free, type it in and find out whether they do, uh, that that will make more work. There are people who will type into this Uh, this thing happened to me, ask some more questions, probe some more, ding, 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 this actually is a case, go ahead and call a lawyer, they'll take it on contingency. Like, whatever it is, like, this could lead to more people who would otherwise never begin to engage the legal system, engaging the legal system.
0: And, you know, I think the other point... Sorry. The other point that needs to be made is that a lot of these, and I think we've talked about this before, but a lot of these bots that are being developed are being developed to do things that lawyers would never be doing in the first place. We're not talking about bots substituting or standing in for lawyers. I mean, the the do not pay is a great example of that. You know, very few people are going to go hire a lawyer over a parking ticket or something like that. Cause it just, it isn't cost effective. Uh, I, I was just writing. I, as a matter of fact, this just reminded me that I forgot to post it. I just posted a, a post uh, as we've been talking here uh, about um, this competition that was just done to, among law students to develop some uh, you know, bots around access to justice. And like one of them is a DOT complaint generator for, for people who've had uh, to allow people to apply for flight refunds uh, for flights that were canceled due to COVID-19. I mean, you know, no lawyer, I mean, that's a legal problem, maybe, or justice problem, maybe. I mean, you know, it, it, how you define uh, uh, the justice gap is is kind of goes a lot into how you think about this, but there are a ton of problems out there that are arguably legal problems, but that you would never go to a lawyer for.
4: Yeah, I call those I call those particular programs Karen bots because that's what they do, right? They like reach out to people and complain to the manager. That's not really a legal thing, uh, but it is still a get what you want thing. Yeah. Good. Okay. All right. Uh, apparently, that struck a. Uh, yeah. No, but that's <laughs> yeah. what I think of them as, right? No, like, I, I that's I love really it. what yeah, they're doing. Good, yeah. yeah, right. We, I don't uh, like my
3: bill. We, as legal tech journalists, can all agree to adopt that nomenclature now, right? right. <laughs> Karen Bot. You should, you,
5: should go, you should copyright that, Joe, while you got a
3: chance.
4: Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Well. I mean, this is. If only this were being uh, recorded somewhere. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, hashtag KarenBot is me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, good, so I think in this program we've agreed to get rid of E and e-discovery and now we've got a new word for consu- low-level consumer bots, I guess, Karen bots. Um, all right, so uh, let's see, we have Vic- Victor had a, did you want to talk, we got a story on some new facial recognition tech, you want to talk about that?
5: Yeah, I just thought it was interesting how, um, you know, this. Uh, in Pasadena, I guess they're rolling out this uh, facial recognition program to help uh, uh, streamline payments, and you know that's that sort of you know it, 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 I thought it was interesting that they're doing that while law enforcement and companies that produce like facial recognition for law enforcement purposes are pulling back their, um, you know their their use of of, of 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 facial recognition and whatnot, and I thought it was interesting that just just that contrast. That kind of like now you know you kind of look at it. Well, okay, from a business standpoint, it makes sense that way. You don't have to touch someone's cash, you don't have to touch someone's credit card. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You can just take, take the take the picture and then, you know, charge them later, it makes perfect sense. But, you know, obviously then, you know, you still have all the same problems that you have with with facial recognition in general that, you know, they've misidentified many people, especially, you know, if they're um, um, of darker shade, like uh, if they're African-American, if they're women. And, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, you can see how this would solve a problem, especially now with COVID where people are, you know, so, you know like where you don't want to touch anybody you don't want to make any contact with anyone and you want to just get in get out and, and 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 just be done with it so i just thought it was interesting just just how like you know this is being rolled out at a time when you know facial recognition is coming under scrutiny but for but for law enforcement purposes not so much for for business
1: purposes yeah i thought yeah, I the thought story inter- good yeah, yeah i thought for that reason that it that you know it's when you shift from law enforcement to consumer, um, that, that, that that's a whole different mindset. I thought it was interesting that it's also, what it's in California, right? So, yeah. Right, which has really been leading the charge against <laughs> facial recognition for law enforcement. So it's, it's, it's really, I thought that was interesting. Um, I also thought that the, one of the use cases that they, they talked about in that story that you sent around Victor was, the, uh, was contact tracing. Yeah. Um, but so that would be a totally different ball game i think that yeah. would that would uh um create a, di- a different issue
0: i was just surprised that the story i, I i'm like thinking how did the editor let the story go out without anybody ever at least addressing the privacy issue it's not in there anywhere i didn't see like you would have think they would somebody would have at least addressed you know this is not a privacy problem because or or maybe this could be a privacy problem because i just thought it was uh uh uh, I was just surprised that, that that the story never never even touched on that.
5: Well, it kind of goes back to what we talked about. I think was it last week or the week before, where you know if it's something that makes your life easier and something that you like and potentially could save you, you know, however, whatever, whatever, whatever you value time, yeah. you know, social, you know, social touching, whatnot, then you're willing to kind of let go a lot of these things. You know, yeah. um, screw privacy. Where, yeah whereas <laughs> like you know if you're where it if it's in a criminal sense like well you know and then then all kinds of all, all kinds of protections come in all kinds of you know individual rights all kinds of you know do you have the right to do this to me that kind of stuff your freedom's at stake your liberty so yeah i mean i do think there's there's that aspect of it well you know like well, i think you know as far as business goes and you're, you're you're seeing a lot of like stadiums start to use it you're seeing a lot of like airports start to use it you're seeing a lot of you know, these other, these other, or, you know, these other things, uh, these other entities and businesses use them. And, you know, they, they promise to like make your consumer experience much more convenient and much more, much more, you know, simple. And for some people that is worth giving up a little bit of the civil, their civil liberties, I think.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and Uh, definitely during COVID-19, I kind of wonder, will some more people just in general want to just say, hey, maybe do less person to person interactions, especially with someone I don't know, but I still need to purchase something. So using that facial recognition, that's something. And I always kind of wonder, like, if you're using it in a private sector space, if you still run into those um, issues where, okay, a Black person tried to buy something and the facial recognition just wouldn't pick up, it kept having trouble. Does that put even more pressure on the company to say, hey, I don't. I implemented this technology to have efficiency and not have these issues, and now I have that. So does that put a little bit more pressure, or maybe um, to say, let's go for a software that's actually more accurate, or let's do more research? I don't know if that actually plays out. Maybe that's kind of me naive, but I kind of wonder: right. Do you have that in like a private sector? Like if you're having those issues with accuracy, that you'll say, okay, we need to look for something that is more accurate. So.
1: Well, and I think that along that point, Victoria, is that for me, I think that's a great observation. That the the company would fail if it doesn't continue to improve. So, if it's having problems and it see and it should be improving its technology, it's either address those issues that you mentioned, or it's or it will have to very quickly address them. Or there's no there's no purpose in using it.
4: Right. Yeah.
0: They, they can... Market market demand will drive those kinds of improvements or market use. Um, Molly, did you have anything you wanted to talk about this I did, week? I know well, you so were kind of on a, vacation.
1: <laughs> I was like, yeah. So um my yeah. mine is on this on this to, on this topic area, which is the whether people will um trust enough in contact tracing to, to embrace it. And there's still, I'm still kind of amazed at how it's like we have this very loose network of volunteer contact tracers, even though we know that by, you know, from countries that have managed to get uh, a lot of their COVID cases under control and open up more quickly uh, that they were, they have a mix of contact tracing, testing, and uh, mask wearing. Um, And in, We've just had such a major issue with it, uh, so I'm, I'm intrigued. My my son is getting ready to go out of, to college, and one of hit, one of their requirements there is for um, contact tracing, or not. It's it one of the things they're doing as part of the reopening plan is doing contact tracing, and what they've done is enabled their Wi-Fi to have certain spots that um, ping them. And so if you test positive for COVID, it will immediately identify which areas you've been where you've had the likely um, likelihood of infecting someone else, a greater likelihood, so it can help with the contact tracing much more quickly, um, so that then they would you know presumably do rapid testing or recommend quarantines or, or something for those areas. Um, but I'm seeing so much pushback. Um, for contact tracing, and every news article I read about, um, well, I guess some states, according to the one I circulated, I'll post it in a minute. But some some states are starting to see more progress in getting people to cooperate. But I think we talked about a few weeks ago that New York had to was it New York had to sue or threaten um, arrest for people who um, refused to give up the names of people who were at their party where COVID um, <laughs> broke out um th- so i you know it's it's in the us there's a major issue with privacy and um and and suspicion um conspiracy theories the the contact tracers are being abused on the phone by by people who don't want to give up their their information or tell about their friends and they feel like they're they're being um uh, they're part of some kind of vast conspiracy <laughs>
3: Yeah, it was wild to me. So my wife's brother uh, currently lives in China, has been living in China for the past two years teaching English abroad. And obviously when this first broke out, he was quarantined. And we were talking to him in April when everything was really starting to flare up here and said, oh, so how's it over there? And he said, well, it's kind of under control right now he whips out his phone, shows us his app and says, so I've been tested. They come to my apartment. They test me every other day. And every time I test negative, they upload it to my phone and I'm allowed to go outside now and just show this app. And it lets me buy whatever I want. I'm good. So I'm like, Oh, that's crazy. I wonder if something like that will get rolled out in the U S but then yeah, after thinking about it for about 30 (laughs) more seconds, no, something like that will never be rolled out in the U S because A, people would just have too much trust issues about what exactly the government is doing with that data, some of which are probably well-founded, some of which maybe not. Um, Also, just people not wanting to abide by that sort of rule. Um, It's an interesting question. I forget who said it earlier with the last topic of values, Um, just who values what and what takes precedence within a society. it'd be interesting to see something like that be rolled out here, but just it would never would catch on on a uniform scale.
5: Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my, one of my guilty pleasures is watching, you know, since Joe mentioned it, watching Karen videos on Instagram. And it's just every other video is just a, is like a, a woman or a man going into like a Walmart or a store and, and just being accosted by security because they refuse to wear masks. And I never realized how many people in this country suffered from like debilitating asthma or, or you know, some 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 form of some mysterious illness that makes it so they can't wear masks but you know um uh, but yeah i mean i guess it's one thing for a college or a university to kind of condition your attendance on on on, on taking part in, in in contact tracing because obviously if you want to go there then you have to play by their rules and whatnot but to do it on like such a wide scale with you know everybody everybody in this country and just the mindset that we have uh, yeah I, I just feel like that would be that will lead to very bad things
0: well it's not just people in walmart i mean here's another headline from above the law this week judge reportedly refuses to wear a mask orders lawyers to remove theirs as well so uh,
4: yeah it's unbelievable and we talk about that in this week's uh thinking like a lawyer which will come out on tuesday um but we we talk about that (laughs) story and and we also yeah exactly and then we also have the um uh there was the woman who uh who is a lawyer who showed up at court with COVID. Uh, well, she did not have COVID. She tested negative, but she'd been living with somebody with COVID and she'd been told by the court, don't show up. And then she did. And you know, then they had that issue. And it's, just, it's a breakdown uh, in a lot of different jurisdictions
1: yeah yeah so so with that so victor we're also seeing i i can't remember which reporter somebody just um set out a call for sources um that I, i saw on twitter um so i'm sure we'll see this but the uh a lot of the restaurants here, I don't know in your areas if they're doing it, but they're requiring a phone number if you sit in their restaurant or in one of their spaces, and it's for them to do contact tracing. So, it, so it's interesting to me that the, the private institutions and businesses are starting to do it more and more, um, and, and governments are starting to do it to a certain extent with, with volunteers leading the, leading the way. So you can volunteer as a contact tracer. There's just the Bloomberg article that I I shared um, talks about one of the major hurdles for contact tracing is a lack of funding and and resources.
0: All right. Well, uh, I think that brings us to a close. Anything else anybody want to raise before we wrap up? I forgot to mention the two of our regulars are off on vacation this week, but Nikki black wasn't here this week and Caroline Hill wasn't here this week. They're both off on staycations or some kind of uh close by vacations. Um, I
4: would like to think that our, our viewers recognize that um, just from the pictures.
0: <laughs> well, but, um, but we have, yeah. we have some new viewers this week. So uh, yeah, I guess that's fair. That's those, fair. That's fair. For those who are not regular, uh, consumers of our, uh, of our show here. We hope they'll come back next week. And that's so I want to tantalize them with the fact that there will be even more talking heads next week. Indeed. Yes. And we will be back next week. Uh, same time, same place. And if you've registered for this, then you're good for next week. You don't have to re-register. You'll get a reminder about a day before. And uh, we hope to see you back next week. And uh, as for all of you guys, thanks a lot again. And hope you all have a good weekend.
1: Thank Have you. Have a nice Thank
5: weekend, you all. Guys. Bye,
0: everybody.